0: Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honor. What's at the end of this case. How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start sure, with the text of the Second
1: Amendment, Your Honor. I I I think that that could be viewed as political. That that would be. How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor. I don't I don't think the First Amendment.
0: You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Texas.
1: Welcome to episode 181 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. We have three cases today, and it sounds like we've got cases lined up, although, as we'll talk about, some of the uh, appellate districts, in in an effort to finalize year-end numbers, uh, we might... uh, The word you're looking for
2: is quotas.
1: Quotas. (laughs) uh, Some of the cases that that, uh, Pat has found, and we don't expect too many more cases between today and... New Year's just because a lot of downtime and hard to schedule things for uh, advocates, etc. With that, uh, the first case today is from the Illinois Appellate 4th District, Sagas versus Spanky Drainage. The second is from the Seventh Circuit, Coatney versus Ancestry.com, DNA, LLC. And the third and final case is from the Illinois Appellate 4th as well, Morozik versus Walmart, Inc., and uh one thing if you follow pat on linkedin he's uh, found for his pictures he seems to be using artificial intelligence ai so you'll see some various drawings and interpretations of these cases that we're covering so so, so it,
2: on that point dan i i uh, my our firm's general counsel gave a presentation at the dri insurance coverage um symposium in, in new york a couple weeks ago and she used AI to make some of the illustrations. And um, she used ChatGPT's Dolly, uh, that part of the application. And that's only in the subscription. So I I tried to find it. I didn't understand that it was buried within ChatGPT and you had to have a subscription to use it. So I found a lot of imitators that really suck. Um, And then I and then I so I emailed her. I said, hey, how are you doing this? She showed me and I, I tried to sign up and it had a wait list. So oh. I went a couple days later, and I was able to sign up. So for 20 bucks a month, I get to have these pictures. And some of them are great. And some of them are downright ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and you really have to do some uh, surgery. Uh, some are better than others. You can do all kinds of stuff with it. It's very cool. Um, and uh, we'll see if it's worth 20 bucks a month, but it is a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, and uh, if you hear background noise, again, I'm at a Starbucks. Pat and I are taping early today, and uh, so my wife tends to sleep in. And so I don't like to disturb her, so I found a local Starbucks. Next week I'll be on the road, uh, but uh, that's a, a, another story. And uh, it's probably named Dolly, uh, Pat. I'm, I'm old enough. Uh, I did a deal back in the early 2000s, and Dolly the uh, sheep was being cloned. And uh, I think it's uh,
2: named after Salvador Dolly.
1: Oh, D A L I.
2: Yeah, well, it's spelled D-A-L-L hyphen E. Like okay. the uh, if you remember that uh, dystopian Disney uh, yep. movie, um, Wally. Wally. So it's it's a play on that, okay. as well as as well as Dalí, the, the the Salvador the, Salvador Dalí. Okay. Okay. The, uh, what 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 was his surrealistic painter?
1: Yeah. Um, and I've been Sherlock. to his
2: museum in in Figueres. Very cool. Um, if you're in North uh, East Spain, I suggest going to there. Um, he designed it before he died because that's the kind of guy he was, uh, yeah. very, very, very cool, um, uh, exhibit there. Um, but yes, it's, it's a neat feature of chat GPT. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I recommend playing around with it and see if it serves your needs to try to illustrate things.
1: So, yeah, I didn't know the spelling of it, but yeah, the, the, the Dolly was a clone. And so we, we were, we were cloning the major system. And so that was, uh, the the dolly piece of the of the uh... acquisition in any event turning to our first case today can attorneys fees if i can get my thing to stay up <laughs> can attorneys fees be awarded as a measure of punitive damages in a case in which the trial court in a bench trial found no compensatory damages that is the question to be answered when the Illinois appellate court fourth district decide sagas versus spanky drainage the plaintiff water management District sued the defendant for trespassing and illegally opening a a valve to drain water from his property. At trial, the trial court found that the plaintiff had not proved the extent of damages and then awarded the attorney's fees incurred about $59,000 as punitive damages on appeal, where the plaintiff did not cross-appeal the finding of no damages. Counsel for plaintiff conceded that usually the measure of the propriety A punitive damages is a single-digit multiple of the compensatory damages.
3: Pat, tell us about this case. So,
2: Dan, um, thank you. This is a case that was decided on Thursday. I missed it. Otherwise, we would have substituted it out, but that's okay. I didn't look at the result, um, so I'll I'll post it later this week. Um, This is a case where there was a dispute between This landowner owned uh, 20 or 30 acres or so of land that kept getting flooded by a uh, drainage district, and he was annoyed with this. And so at one point, he went and opened up a gate valve, used self-help, essentially, not essentially, exactly, uh, and drained out the property. And that uh, did not uh, sit well with the drainage district because it screwed up other things that had happened. This Actually, this property is apparently in two different drainage districts. Uh, which impacted the the issue somehow. But anyway, he and opens it, plainly trespasses. But at this trial level, the circuit court didn't believe the the plaintiff's expert as to the calculation of damages. The plaintiff used a calculation on how much additional energy had to be used in order to apply the pumps to put the water back where it was supposed to be and undo the damage that they alleged had been done. And so... Water is water, but electricity is not, in this context at least, is not electricity. So they had to run the pumps longer than they would have otherwise, and they used this federal standard, and let's just say the circuit court didn't find that very convincing. The mistake that they made was, is they didn't cross-appeal that finding. And so now they're left with a judgment of the attorney's fees they had to expend, yet another measure of their damages, but it was done as punitive damages. Well punitive damages has to be a multiplier of the compensatory damages and there were no compensatory damages. Trespass itself, yes, can cause damage, but you have to show what that damage is. And in this case, the plaintiff didn't do that. So you don't just get to come up with some other measure of damage, I don't think. And I think that's what the court's going to hold is that you can't just start making up new kinds of damage because you don't have, you didn't prove your first line element of damage. So now we get to substitute in attorney's fees as a punitive. certainly. Had they proved compensatory damages, the attorney's fees incurred would have played into the amount of punitive damages. That certainly is, is proper, but um, by itself, uh, you know, in the absence of compensatory damages, you don't just get to say, "Well, you get your you get your attorney's fees." That's that's not how uh, any of this works. Uh, it turns out, and even I can do this math, that. When you multiply anything by zero, you, you get zero, and so what? What? It, it, it turns out, and that's what I learned. Um, uh, and and I, I remember this part that, that anything multiplied by zero is zero, and it even applies here. I was reached out, uh, or after I posted this, uh, someone reached out to me, and uh, um, there's at least one case that suggests attorneys' fees are not a pure substitute for punitive damages in Glass versus burcott. Sixty-four Ill App Third Six Seventy Six from 1978. The court stated that quote trial court the trial court may properly consider as one element of punitive damages the amount of attorneys' fees, but further stated that fees quote cannot be awarded as a separate entity distinct from punitive damages. So end quote. So the law seems to be clear on this. This didn't seem to come up. We'll see if it's in the opinion. If that's how the court the court comes out. Um, plainly the point, the, uh, the sagas person did wrong by going onto the property, uh, as unhappy as he was with how they were just, what he claimed were they were destroying his property, essentially using his, his field as their, his fields as the place to uh, dump their water. I get his unhappiness, but that's not the remedy. Um, they have courts for these things. We don't want a range war or a water war. That's not. We're not going to do that. That we're civilized, hopefully, or at least more civilized than that. Um, and so we shouldn't be doing that. But self help does occur on occasions, despite uh, despite counsel by attorneys. Otherwise, I, we certainly have. Been, I'm sure, Dan, you found yourself in a similar situation. You told the client, "Don't use self help. Don't right. do that. That's never. Gonna, that's not going to go well. The court doesn't like that." Uh, that's what they want to avoid because that leads to confrontations and potentially violence and that's what the courts are designed to do. prevent in the first instance is people taking matters into their own hands uh, thats vigilanteism is rarely what we're looking for um, right. as, as much fun as it is in the movies uh, it, you, know, you know Charles Bronson, Liam Neeson vigilante is uh, uh, um, Bruce Willis you know entertaining but not good uh, not good for a civilized society. Uh, likewise, going and turning the gate valve in order to get water off your property, right. Uh, as, as right as he may have been, that's why they have money damages. Uh, so I think I think we know where I think I know where this case is going to come out. I don't think there's any other way that the court the court can come out. Uh, but that's not what the circuit court did, and I, I don't understand. I understand the circuit court's unhappiness with what the plaintiff did, but I don't I don't think that that's going to work. Uh, Dan, uh, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, as you know, the old adage, he might be right as rain, but it's, it's not going to go well. And like you said, vigilantism, uh, land disputes, fighting over water. In the West, this, uh, the, these types of things probably happen more just because of the shortage of water. So there's a lot of riparian rights type of, of cases over history that uh, to deal with dams and downstream water and all kinds of things and a lot of self-help going on there that you get the Hatfields and McCoys types of fights over property and, and stupid shit. But like you said, Pat, uh, in the movies, Liam Nielsen and these others vigilante justice, uh, might, might it's feel good. Inter- and stuff.
2: It's very entertaining. Don't yeah. do
1: it. <laughs> and you know, I, I, as you said with clients, sometimes, sometimes clients want to fight with on principle with a PLE and they chase it with PAL. And I, I advise them that, uh, fighting principle sometimes can feel good, but it, uh, as you said, Pat, when it when it actually gets to uh, a neutral uh, court of law or a jury, the, the, those items usually don't end well. And like you said, I don't understand what the trial court did here because it's multiples. It's you know this goes goes back to the BMW cases and other cases at the Supreme State, Court where State they came up with multiples. Safe Farm, the the multiples and reasonableness of punitive damages. They've never set a an actual test, but, but it's, you know, single digits, as you said. So, uh, and, and I wasn't aware that this case, uh, like you said, had been decided until this morning. So I have no idea either, but I think, I think listeners can tell where our predictions are. And I'd be very surprised if when you publish this week, those predictions aren't right.
3: Yep.
2: So with that, we'll take our uh, first break and come back and discuss uh, Cotney versus Ancestry.com DNA LLC.
0: Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
2: We're back for segment two of episode 181 on the Podium and Panel podcast and quote, suppose that the parent buys a phone for a child and the contract says that there's a two-year limited warranty. Can the child nonetheless extend the warranty for life on the ground that only the parent agreed to the limit? end quote. Second hypothetical, quote, a parent buys a car for the minor child. I might have done that recently. The child is 17, and the car has to be paid for, and it isn't. And a company arrives to take the car, and the child says, no, I get the benefit of the contract, which is the car, and only my parents are bound to pay, so you can't take it back. It, It can't be repossessed, end quote. Those are two hypotheticals posed by Judge Easterbrook in the recent argument for the Seventh Circuit in Cotney versus Ancestry.com DNA, LLC. The minor plaintiff brought a punitive uh, brought a putative claim for violation of the Gen- Genetic Information Privacy Act. We had previewed this, was coming. Uh, yep. Dan has mentioned it several times on the show. And there's been a number of cases now filed um, against life insurance companies. for looking back at medical histories. I, if the law prohibits that, by the way, I don't know how you're supposed to underwrite life insurance. And life insurance is going to get all kinds of screwed up.
1: Or, or almost anything else. but And, and I'll, I'll mention when we get into it.
2: Yeah. And the defendant moved to compel arbitration, arguing that the parent bound the child, and in the alternative that the child, a, a third-party beneficiary of the contract, notwithstanding the fact that there's a provision in the contract prohibiting third-party beneficiaries. <laughs> the the uh, s- district court denied the motion to compel an ancestry uh, dot .com appeal. Uh Dan, uh, tell us about uh, this case.
1: Sure Pat, and as we as you mentioned, we've discussed uh, Gippa's becoming not not quite the new BIPA, but it's uh, the 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 number of cases I think we're seeing at the state and even uh, northern district level is is starting to increase. Uh, GIPA was uh, enacted uh, in 1998, so a decade before BIPA. We've talked about the Personal Information Privacy Act, PIPA. So we got a lot of IPAs, as I mentioned the other day, uh, to uh, the CBA Insurance Law Committee and LexisNexis. We did a thing on artificial intelligence, and uh, we talked about genetics and things and, and uh, biometric information. It's interesting because I, I spoke on uh, cyber insurance at, a, at the firm meeting, uh, for my, my firm's meeting, a week or two ago and one of the people in the room asked what uh, biometric information was and so I kind of explained it so Pat you meant you mentioned these life insurance cases I saw Prudential was sued I think last week was the latest uh, they're going after all the big ones State Farm uh, uh you name it New York Life I think anybody that's writing life insurance in Illinois and as you said if uh, life insurers can't use uh genetics and and uh, in underwriting then we're, we're probably finished in terms of actual underwriting of life insurance. It may not matter so much in, in group term life, but it matters in whole life. It matters in a lot of other term life policies, especially the jumbos that some people get. It it, uh, it has an also, impact, right?
2: It also matters in disability policies.
1: At disability policies. And so the, the one interesting thing in, in, in GIPA when it was enacted back in 1998 is that it has a prohibition on insurance uh, usage, but it's for health policies, health and accident, and, and especially in the group health context. And the reason for that is, you know, if you were able to use that to not underwrite, that, that's just a no-brainer. That's that's something that the insurance code would say. You can't uh, deny somebody health insurance, especially now with unlimited limits. There used to be a million-dollar limits, and that was something that was much more prevalent back in those days where... You know people that had a catastrophic injury sometimes they they weren't able to get the the health insurance because it would would uh, wreak havoc on on limits but uh, in any event this case it, it's GIPA, but it's really as you mentioned pat it's it has to do with this uh has to do with arbitration and whether uh the the uh minors are subject to the arbitration provision one of the one of the funniest things I thought uh and maybe it just tickled me the this this way, this, the the attorney for, for Ancestry.com dot com argued that there's substantial benefits that the seven year old kid gets that he he or she which, which I don't I'm not sure what it was that that, that they get their genetic identification it doesn't change at <laughs> seven years old that that's uh, you know a, a real uh, rich benefit for the seven year old I mean when I was seven I was so obtuse and things and when my kids were seven you know if i had told them <laughs> your genetic your 23 and me came back son i <laughs> yeah, i don't understand
2: who's getting the genetic makeup of the 7 year old i mean i don't understand right. this i mean
1: Well, i don't know if it was a family thing or or yeah why would you i mean do, do the do the grandparents say hey here's a, here's a good idea i i got to tell you pat you know some of the some some of the things i've seen with it with, with dna uh, tracing i may have uh, told you this story before but uh, uh, when the Brett Kavanaugh hearings were taking place, one of my college uh, teammates, I saw him at homecoming and he came up to me and he said, oh, you know, he, he starts talking. And then he says, oh, my son's in the back of the barn. I thought he was talking about his 13-year-old son. Well, no, he, this dude with a beard and a, an Iowa sweatshirt comes up to us. He's, he's in his 30s. And he says, hey, this is my son. And he tells me the story about how uh the the kid's mother traced him down he was in the fraternity at the college it was a co-ed from town and uh she didn't know who her who were who, who, who she'd been with uh 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 fully and so uh my my college teammate's sister uh did dna testing for to see some genetic thing in her family or whatever and that uh his sister showed up on this lady's 23 and me when she got tested because it was in the database uh the uh, Golden Gate Bridge uh, killer one of those people out in California uh, one of his relatives put in 23 and me and it showed up that he was in fact uh his DNA matched and so but in any event who 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 knows why why these parents why a 7-year-old's getting their their, their DNA but you, in, in the introduction, uh, Pat, uh, the, the the first question, the one about a, the phone for a child and the contracts as a two-year limited warranty, uh, Easterbrook used that almost not quite exact wording, but he used it in both for the appellant and the appellee mm-hmm. and asked them the question. Well, it and, was equal
2: opportunity in giving them the He It was the equal and, opportunity. And and, and and didn't get answers he liked because he, he was like, there's got to be Illinois cases about this. And they're like, nope, no cases.
1: Well, not only Illinois cases, but then he was asking the advocates, you know, one of the things that the, the Seventh Circuit does is predicts what Illinois would do. He says, if this is a case of first impression, are there any cases in any other states? He said, you know, you, we, a lot of times we'll talk about Indiana or other states that have something so that we can at least take a look. And, and you and I have covered cases like that where, where there's, no, there's no Illinois law directly on point. They're trying to predict what the Illinois courts will do, and like you said, he he was not satisfied with the answers, he, and he asked a lot more questions of the appellant. I think here, but he but he was equal opportunity. He asked a lot of questions. The only other judge I think on the panel that asked questions was Flom, um, and he asked a question or two. Um, it's an interesting case. I mean, it's uh you know we we. Um, the one with the car is uh, to, to to me was 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 uh, an interesting question because it do, it does raise questions right if you if like i said if you uh, bought a car for your 17 year old it's not paid for they come and get it um,
2: in, in, in my case we'll say that the car is in my name you can't put yeah. the car in the in the 16 year old's name right They so can't the contract in my right my name i'm yeah. on the paper it's my account you know so she's just the one that uses it um you know she's because i don't need i don't want to shop her around anymore so she gets a car and drives wherever she wants um the uh <laughs> but if someone came to take it i don't understand how that would be any other way she's just a permitted operator she doesn't own right. the thing right i own the thing or right if i don't pay I, I i agree
1: i agree i and and, and in this case it, you know again I, I don't fully understand what's taking place here most websites most uh contracts uh on the internet. Uh, Things like this, that they have provisions in the terms and conditions that say anybody under the age of eighteen is not eligible to buy the services. Um, And again, here I don't know who. I it it wasn't entirely clear to me, you know. Again, who who was buying these services? Was it in the kid's name? But in any event, I I, you know, it's uh, uh, it's an interesting uh, question of whether these minors. Who can't consent to a contract, um, like you said, Pat? The 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 car analogy, even the phone analogy. So you you, you know, a thirteen year old kid, a seven year old kid, can't go to the Verizon store and say, "I want to get a, a a program." You know, I want to get a monthly plan, and it's in my name. You know, even though the parents have maybe an, an umbrella family plan. So it's it, this case is a interesting um, in terms of ter- terms of all that. The um, uh like I, like I said, the uh, Easterbrook, one of his questions was about minors, and you know the fact that they can ratify later, and as you mentioned, Pat, you know, the, these uh, analogies that minors can take the benefits, but not the detriments uh, that, that it's the parents contracting. Um, I, I, I just uh, I, I'm not sure how you can bind a, a seven-year-old to uh, a mandatory arbitration. And did you know did you do you know what the what the actual dispute is here? Denderline dispute His, it wasn't entirely clear to me.
2: It's a GIPA claim. So it's a claim. Oh, yeah, that they yeah, the improperly used use. the, the used or collected and didn't give a proper notice under GIP
1: Yeah. Suppose. So 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 uh I mean the one interesting thing ancestry.com has been a suit for GIPA in another context in in relation to uh they had a transaction I forget who they sold to I think private equity a year or two ago. They were one of the first uh, major BIPA cases or BIPA GIPA cases to be filed uh, under the Illinois law, and uh, Ancestry.com actually won that case because the um, uh, courts and the appellate courts in Illinois said that as part of a transaction that that's excluded. That it wasn't actual, you know, if you you have to for due diligence purposes provide the data that you've collected under Ancestry.com. So it'll be interesting i you know it's uh the, the other uh and that that was Ancestry.com. this the, here again i don't I, I really don't know uh what it, what exactly um what what genetic information would have been given up here yeah so.
2: I, I don't understand what the real claim is but at this point we're not at the merits we're at the no. we're at the arbitration or not as the case may be we will see we will see what uh We'll see what happens. So with that, we'll take our, our next break and come back with Morozik versus Walmart, Inc.
0: Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
1: Welcome back to Segment 3 of Episode 181 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and it seems appropriate here to replace a premises case with another one uh, for uh, for this episode of the Podium and Panel podcast. Uh, we were going to cover a case uh, per cell, but it came out before we could discuss it, so we turned to Morozik v. Walmart Inc., and Morozik, the plaintiff, alleges that she fell and was injured when her pant leg was caught on the corner of an end cap display. The circuit court granted summary judgment. The plaintiff contended that the end cap had a jagged edge, either because it had been damaged and not repaired, or was improperly designed. The plaintiff also contended that she was distracted by the items for sale, including the dry cat food. It's always a distracting uh, thing that she was looking to purchase. She took pictures after her fall that showed that other end caps had rounded edges. That is one alert plaintiff after an injury, as Pat posted on LinkedIn. In opposition, the defendant contended that the end cap was installed as designed, but there was no evidence that the end cap was previously damaged, no evidence that the plaintiff's pant leg was caught, because she was not scratched and the pants were not torn and that the plaintiff testified that she was not distracted. Pat, tell us about this interesting premises case.
2: Thanks, Dan. Um, I, I truly don't understand how this accident occurred. And I think that the uh, court was equally befuddled. Um, the plaintiff contended that the, the edge of this end cap was jagged. Uh, and they vacillated between whether that was the design or if it had because it'd been kicked and struck by other carts and so forth, that caused it to be in this fashion that allowed it to catch her pant leg. I don't understand how catching her pant leg would have caused her to fall, especially considering the the hoff of her pant leg, which was it was like a tight. It wasn't like a pair of jeans. It was like tight to her, it was a pair of tights, I think. So I I don't understand. Um the embedded in this argument was an open and obvious argument but which is why the distraction exception came up um i i, I somewhat understand that i mean you're in a store you're you're looking around and they want you to be looking around counsel cited to the ward versus kmart case where the guy's carrying a big bunch of packages outside of the store and he runs into the post and gets injured so i, I kind of understand the distraction exception the problem is though is that the plaintiff at her deposition was asked, were you distracted at the time of the accident? The answer was no. Okay. And and plaintiff's counsel's like, well, that she didn't really mean it. Well, she didn't really mean it. She was asked the direct question. Right. Well, it calls for a legal conclusion, this and that. She didn't understand what was embedded in the question. Well, how would you like me to ask, were you distracted? I don't know another way. Was there something that drew your attention away? I, I, you know, I think just asking, were you distracted? I've done it were you distracted seems to be the way to ask were you distracted (laughs) you think i I think so i think it's a word that has yes it has it has a term of art i will concede in this context of an open and obvious it is it has a term of art but i i think it's an appropriate question to ask were you distracted if she had said well i was looking at the cat food okay then you have your answer maybe she would maybe that would count as a distraction now, she apparently said that later on in the deposition, but when you answer the question just directly, were you distracted? She says, no, well, there's pretty good evidence that uh, she wasn't distracted because, uh, I mean, it's purely a subjective circumstance um, and, and, you know, whether someone was actually uh, distracted um, Only that person's going to know where they were looking, what they were doing, yada, yada. Uh, and if the argument is, well, I was looking at the cat food, well, Why didn't you look at the thing that was down on the floor? Um, I do enjoy thoroughly that she then walked around and started taking pictures of end caps before she left. How hurt could she possibly have been? Uh, I I really, I really wonder about that. Uh, There also was a video apparently grainy and not very helpful. So it wasn't in the record much to the frustration of the appellate court. The appellate court justices have gotten used to seeing videos where those are available. They want to be able to see what happened uh, for themselves Uh, counsel for plaintiff described it and the question came have you seen this thing? Oh yeah, but it's not very helpful. Well, That's great for you to say that, but I'd I'd like to make that decision you know, the justices say I'd like to make that decision for myself as to whether it's very helpful. We've talked about a lot of CTA cases in particular where they're very uh, profligate with the video I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but just that they have video everything I had a a case recently not not on the bus somehow Counsel for the bicycle rider who was who was injured got video from the passing bus that shows his client getting hit by a door.
1: Wow, that's pretty good.
2: It's pretty good. It's it's pretty good. Now, I, I don't think it's very helpful to the plaintiff's position in terms of liability. I have the, the coverage aspect of the case. But I will say that is very cool that he was <laughs> able to somehow track down the video from the bus. To that's get pretty good sleuthing. Yeah, that's, I don't know. There's got to be a way for him to have done that. Yeah, and, and it's very important video because it it contradicts the direction that everybody was going based uh, on the police report. The police report says they were going north. In fact, the video from the from the bus shows clearly they were going south. Um, it, it, it it's an intersection I'm oh. very familiar with. So when I saw it I was like going, hold it, police report's wrong. <laughs> I know these landmarks. I know where this is at. This is the wrong direction. Uh, now I understand where things are going and why this, how this accident happened. I was able to put together a lot of things based on the video and understand what was going on uh, with, a, with a little bit more sleuthing of my own. But yeah, it, th- there's video everywhere. Uh, yep. You never know when you're being recorded. Uh, certainly when you go by a bus. So I don't know how they came up with this. I got to cool as hell. Uh, kudos to them for coming up with it. Very helpful to their client to have a video of what happened. I'm sure they will argue that you know in the in the tort case that this uh shows that uh the defendants were negligent okay it certainly helps to have the video of this thing uh it's very quick but it's great to have a video the justices would like a video so if you have a case and you have a video give it to them
3: right
2: uh and that goes for everybody because they're going to ask about it they, they expect to see it they're almost like jurors that expect to see the cs remember the old csi thing you know, a big thing the jurors want to find out why he doesn't particularly in criminal cases. Why don't you know everything like they do on CSI? Well, that's not how it really works. Um, this does. If the video does exist, now they understand if it doesn't exist or doesn't show the accident, they get that. But if it does, then they want to see it, and, and, I, and I think we we probably should get get it to them. Um, but a case that raises a lot of issues regarding uh, whether. Should they have had a uniform end cap that had a rounded edge? How do you show that this was damaged? I don't even understand how they're going to show that she tripped, how this caused her fall. I, I just don't get it. Uh, but we, we shall see. Dan, thoughts on this case?
1: I agree. I, you know, and the fact that her pants, she had no scratches. She wasn't, uh, not no damage. Um, when, I, when I was at homecoming at my, uh, undergrad, I was in the uh, alumni tent eating lunch with with somebody, and and then the uh, one of the, one of the bands came by, and so I stood up and I turned and I hadn't realized I was next to a, a rusty metal uh, spike to keep the tent up, pat. and my pants leg like, with nothing happened to it, but my my right shin still has uh, the the markings and scrapings from. From back in October, you know the evidence of it. So it, it'll be interesting. Like I said, she also, you know, I mean, in some ways, she was very alert to go take pictures of other end caps. But th- th- this sounds like a, as we talked about on LinkedIn, some others weighed in. It's very; di- these are very difficult cases for plaintiffs be- just because of these types of facts, right? How do you, how do you prove that she tripped on this? Like I said, she wasn't distracted, although, you know, owning two cats, you know, dry cat food sale displays, if that doesn't distract you and while wow you, <laughs> I don't know what will at, at a Walmart or any other store, um, being facetious yeah. there,
3: but
1: <laughs> we, we it's a interesting them. case.
2: Indeed. So with that, um, uh, we'll turn to no BI for COVID, I don't think. Um, no. Nope. I did see an art- article about a, a decision or a case submitted to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court um, seeking review of a COVID-19 case that went in favor of the insured. So there, wow. there's, there's that pending. We'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, that brings us to our prediction, sure to go wrong. Dan is 282 and a half, 59.5, and, and 19. I'm 179.5, 62.5, and 19. We got... Uh, Alave versus City of Chicago, right? Uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about this case?
1: Sure. And this was the case, Pat, where someone was on a road in downtown Chicago. There was a Divi station nearby. He was not using the Divi bike, but was using his own. The circuit court said that he was not an intended user, and and so there was no duty to fix the roads because of the Divi. The appellate court had reversed, and and now the, the Supreme Court of Illinois uh, reverse the judgment of the appellate court. We talked about this in episode 169, and uh, uh, just yeah, you, you know, if 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 you're on the road, you, probably even if you are a Debbie Wright driver, the uh, we talked about this pat. We've talked about CTA cases. We've talked about City of Chicago and the light poles and other things. You know, if 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 courts were to find that the city had these obligations or someone had the obligation to, you know, fix every pothole in Chicago, fix every uh, crevice and, and every uh, blemish uh, that, that could cause harm uh, the the already stretched city of Chicago and many other municipalities would be out of business
2: even more out of business than they already are right um, so, right uh, they' they're bankrupt in all but name if uh, the, the <laughs> difference between the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois the city can declare bankruptcy the state cannot.
3: Um, That's right.
2: Under under Chapter Nine of the uh, of the Bankruptcy Code, uh, witness Detroit as an example. Uh, sit, the Chicago's financial situation is akin to that of Detroit's, if not worse. Uh, it is. Uh, we just, I think Dan mentioned we discussed Alave on episode one sixty nine, yep. um, which brings us to Mitchell versus Michaels. Uh, this is uh, a case that we discussed in episode one seventy eight. A very tragic situation where. Uh, uh, The wife was, uh, and the mother of at least two children, minor children, was killed by a drunk driver. uh, And the husband did not find out about the, uh, did not act timely in finding out about the uh, places where this person had been to become intoxicated. He knew that she was intoxicated, or that, I'm sorry, they knew that the the, um, allegedly intoxicated person was intoxicated seven days after the accident, and then didn't do any investigation. There's a one-year statute of limitations. The court held that the statute of limitations is more than just a condition precedent. It is a statute of limitations in the Durham Shop Act. The uh, plaintiff, if you recall, tried to make a big deal after one, one year next after the cause of action accrues, tried to make a lot out of the accrual language, and the court said, no, this is a statute of limitations. And one year from the date of the accident, you knew the accident occurred. You knew it had been wrongfully caused. You knew shortly thereafter that the person was intoxicated, and you needed to um, examine. You needed to follow up. What is unclear from this decision, Dan? And I am is whether the court. I didn't. I couldn't gather whether they were crediting that week or not. So there was a week after the accident before. The, the, the widower finds out that the person was uh, was drunk. And are they crediting that week as did the circuit court, or are they not? Because that's a big difference. It's a very small difference in this case. But in another case, you can see it being a big deal. Uh, they affirmed the appellate court in all respects. Uh, I, I'm not sure um, not sure how this works. Uh, Dave, yeah, I don't either. Okay, I didn't gather from the opinion we'll nah. to stay on top of that. But uh, which, I think we'll see this again. Um, which brings us to Mitchell's versus Max, which we discussed last week on episode 180. Dan mentioned the alacrity with which these decisions are coming out. Um, And uh, this is an unnatural accumulation case. It's going to be a topic, part of the topic of my column for this week. And the reason is, is because the decision is a really thorough discussion of the origin development application of the natural accumulation rule in Illinois. Um, and essentially holds that there is no duty of ordinary care where there's an, a natural accumulation of, uh, a natural accumulation of snow and ice, snow, ice, or water for that matter. And so that this is a case that we got right. Uh, We got all three of these right. As a matter of fact, um, which brings us to our prediction, sure to go wrong for this week. Segez versus Spanky, I think gets reversed on the damages issue. Um, I agree. I, I don't see how that can stand. Cotney versus Ancestry. I, I think this gets reversed. I think so. I don't. Th- I don't see a world where you can have uh, in our, a contract is a contract. I, I, I don't understand how that could be otherwise. And yeah. Morozik versus Walmart. That gets affirmed, right? Affirmed. Okay. Which brings us to the rule of the week, Dan. And why don't you introduce that for us?
1: Sure. And and you found this uh, today, Pat. You uh, raised but, but, well, yeah. <laughs> so there was a a, a dissent from a, a denial of a grant of cert by the Supreme Court of the United States, and uh, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote on it. Uh, this has to do with offensive collateral estoppel in the MDL context, which is a very interesting. Um, and as Pat uh, noted to me when we talked about this case, MDLs given can they comprise half the federal docket? Believe it or not. They haven't got a, a whole lot of love or attention from the Supreme Court of the United States. So, Pat, why don't you tell us about uh, the dissent and, and this kind of rule of the week?
2: So what happened here is there was a claim against DuPont uh, for, it's DuPont, right? Yeah, DuPont. Yeah. Uh, for chemicals. Shocking. DuPont involved in a chemical case. And <laughs> <laughs> turns out they make those things. Uh, and in this case, there were chemicals that allegedly caused a bunch of plants injuries. And so that gets put into an MDL. They get three bellwether trials. DuPont loses them all. And so then the, the, MDL's, the MDL settles. Great. So then some other people that were not in the MDL then file suit. And they want to be able to use what happened to the bellwether trials against DuPont uh, and basically leave the issue of causation and damages... To the trials moving forward, but that the issue essentially of liability is done, and the circuit or the district court applied non-mutual offensive collateral estoppel. So let's dig way back into our the world of uh, civil procedure. Um, so this is non-mutual; these are not the same parties. Offensive being used against the defendant, and the collaterally stopping them issue uh, on the issue of liability. And the district court held they could. The appellate court or circuit court affirmed, and there was a cert petition filed. And Justice Thomas is like, in the MDL context, where these cases are not consolidated for all purposes, and these people weren't in the MDL, they are consolidated for the purpose of efficiently handling the discovery and, and having the bellwether trials to help effectuate resolution, but those cases are not binding. Um, on the people that aren't in those cases. You have sometimes bellwether trials that go one way and then go the other. The fact that this one, where all three bellwether trials went against the defendant, okay, but why does that have, why can that be aff- offensively used against a party who wasn't even in the MDL? Um, they will now. Uh, I, I think this is very troubling. Uh, yeah, I think part of the reason why the... Court has not jumped into the M.D.L. process because there's a panel, the the multi district litigation panel that handles and manages these things. That's a, a, a the, the Congress has created this process that scoops up all these cases, sends them to one district court judge who then has to manage all of these. And they come in all varieties. Um, generally mass tort, but they come in. Uh, I had one, the one I was involved in many years ago, dealt with mortgage foreclosures. Um, and so you have a whole range of these things.
3: Um,
2: and they're, they're an efficient way of dealing with these giant cases. But the Supreme Court has not gotten involved, even though they make up half the federal docket. And this is an opportunity to have gotten involved, and they didn't, and only one justice apparently was interested in getting involved. Uh, so an interesting and important rule of the week, given the size of the MDL docket in the, uh, in the federal court. Dan, anything to
1: add on that? I think you covered it, and it it is interesting. They haven't gotten involved, but uh, like you said, it could be because of the panel, and could just be a, uh, it, it, you know, um, but 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 eventually they probably will will have a case, just because again these there's got to be some case some interesting issues and some constitutional issues that will eventually come up in these, so we'll see. If the court ever takes these, uh, like I said, Thomas was the only one to dissent here. And so uh, didn't get any of his brethren to join. And so we'll see what, uh, what happens.
2: Very good. So with that, we'll take our leave. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. We'll see you next week on the Podium Panel Podcast.
3: I'm Dan Cotter. And on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.